You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Good afternoon. My name is Chris Costa. I'm the executive director of the International Spy Museum. Thank you for joining me in a conversation today. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. Today, I'm joined by Bryant Neal Vinas and Mitch Silver. They joined me here today to talk about terrorism and to talk specifically about Bryant Neal Venus's journey. Uh, I think it's a fascinating and compelling story. Um, Bryant was convicted on terrorism-related charges for joining Al-Qaeda and has since been released from prison. And Mitch Silber is the former director of intelligence and analysis at NYPD, widely known for his commentary on terrorism and his analytical work. I first met Bryant in June 2012. I talked to you about your ideological journey that you, took you to pa Pakistan and Afghanistan. At that time, I watched a CNN segment about you, and before meeting you, I had read Omar Nasiri's book, Inside the Jihad, which you talked about earlier today. Yes. Uh, I heard it was your blueprint for waging jihad, or at least tra attempting to make the journey to wage jihad, and I think that's a very strong narrative as well. Today, I want to have a conversation about your radicalization and the journey you took. Thank you very much for joining me in this podcast. It's, uh, it's truly good to see you again, Brian. Same here. It's great to see you, too. Thank you. Before we get started... The final intro introductory point I want to make is to tell you that during my time as a special assistant to the President for Counterterrorism at the National Security Council White House last year, I reflected back on our interview and I wanted you to know that you provided me very important context on understanding the radicalization process to help inform our counterterrorism policy choices and I was very grateful for that. So Brian, 
I'd really like you to tell your story, but before we do that, I really want to hear from Mitch because he does a very good pr- uh, framing. So, Mitch, welcome. It's a pleasure to meet you. Great. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. So if you could kind of frame just your relationship, what's your connection now to Bryant, and also uh, talk a little bit about your nonprofit because I think it's very important work. Okay, great. Well, uh, as uh, Chris, you mentioned, I'm the former director of intelligence analysis at the NYPD. And uh, after 9-11, the New York City Police Department set up its own independent intelligence collection and analysis capability that complemented the work that the Joint Terrorism Task Force did in New York City. Um, We had a number of investigations open that were our own autonomous investigations. And in 2007, we were very much seized with the homegrown threat. Would Americans radicalize to al-Qaeda-inspired violence and look to commit that violence on the home front? Um, A lot of our concern in New York City was informed by what we were seeing in Europe, whether it was the attacks in Madrid, the attacks in London of 2005, uh, other Dutch, Belgian, Germans who were seeking to travel overseas to fight for al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And the question was, could that, would that happen in the United States? Um, so we had a number of investigations open, and either at the end of 2007 or early 2008, um, intelligence was passed the NYPD that there was an American overseas, there was an American who had joined al-Qaeda, and ultimately it was determined that that American was in fact a New Yorker, was Bryant Neal Vinyas. Um, Bryant Neal Vinyas came from Long Island, and in New York City, the NYPD uh, did have connections with law enforcement on Long Island, was investigating groups that had connections to Long Island. And in fact, uh, once we knew that it was Bryant who was overseas, we in fact realized that, that he was connected to an individual who was a member of a group called the Islamic Thinker Societies, upon which we had an open investigation. Um, Our concern was that Bryant was overseas, he was likely receiving training uh, in terrorist tactics and operations, and he might well be in communication with this cluster of individuals in New York City, and they may seek to carry out some attack. Um, There had been other Westerners who had gone to travel to visit al-Qaeda to fight on the battlefield there, yet were turned around to carry out attacks at home in London two different plots in Denmark, in Germany. So we were also concerned that Bryant might be sent home because he knew New York City, because he was a U.S. citizen, uh, because to some degree he had been a clean skin and might look to carry out an attack uh, in New York. So over the better part of a year, investigations were ongoing, both JTTF and NYPD Intelligence Division, to try and ascertain uh, what was the situation vis-a-vis Bryant and the New Yorkers who he knew. And then ultimately in November 2008, he was arrested in Peshawar, and that shifted the investigation to a new phase. Thanks, Mitch. That's a great, great lay down. I appreciate that. So, Brian, tell me the story. I know you've told it before. Yeah. But if you if you can give us your narrative again, then I have a few questions for you. It's a fascinating story. Sure. So, uh, I guess my journey into Islam and then eventually going overseas uh, started when I was in high school. Uh, I had uh, gone with some friends to the mall, and I saw a pretty girl working at the kiosk uh, selling T-shirts. So I was talking to her, flirting with her. We, we had good chemistry, and then uh, I asked her if she wanted to get something to eat with me. And then she says, sorry, I can't be. Uh, I'm Muslim. 
if my parents find out that I'm going out on dates or if I have a boyfriend, then I can get kicked out of the house. So um, that piqued my curiosity to find out more about um, what she was telling me. So I had a friend in school explain to me that it's better to not to have a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. It's better to have a husband-wife relationship because what if she gets pregnant? And, uh, you know, some of the stuff that he was telling me made sense. Uh, so then I had a Turkish friend that I was a little more closer with, uh, and I kept asking him for, you know, different questions uh, on Islam. And I think I was, I was bothering him after a few days of, of pestering him. So he offered to give me a book. Uh, it was a book on fundamental um, Islam, uh, the daily prayers, a uh, biography of the Prophet. Uh, and he gave it to me as a gift, and I read it, and I, I really enjoyed that book. Uh, and I was probably going to become Muslim uh, until 9-11 happened. Then I held off on it. But over the years, I still fasted uh, during Ramadan, incorrectly, because I was still drinking water. I didn't know you couldn't have food or drink. Right. But I was just being hungry all day. That, that's all I was really doing. And then from, uh, from the reading of the book he gave me, it said you had to give a charity at the end of, before the end of Ramadan to, for your fast to be accepted. So the only mosque that I knew of was in Astoria, Queens, and I walked by there many times. So I went there to make a donation. I had my checkbook ready, and I asked uh, a young guy that was in the lobby area if he knew the name of the, the mosque so that I could write out uh, a donation for him. So he says, hold on a second. Let me, let me see what I can find out for you. Goes behind the door, comes back a minute later, and he says, come on in. Uh, some guys want to talk to you. So when I go in, uh, there's a bunch of guys sitting in a circle. One of them has a book. And one of the guys says to me, do you want to become Muslim? And I'm like, yes. So he, he says some stuff in Arabic for me to repeat, and I repeated him. And then he says, uh, now you're Muslim. And I said, uh, in my mind, I was thinking, well, I didn't want, I, I didn't want to be Muslim right there at that second. Right. I, I wanted to be Muslim eventually. So that was the story of how I, I embraced it. You surprised that after it's the Shahada. Yeah, it's Shahada. Uh, and I, I didn't know it was that easy. I didn't know it was that fast. And I didn't know it was at that moment I was going to be Muslim. I wasn't planning it that day, but that's how it ended up. You uh, were on that path, though. Yeah, I was, I was leaning towards becoming Muslim. Uh, just wasn't planning it that day. Right. Yeah. So um, over time, I had a friend who would talk to me about conspiracy theories going on uh, around the world. And uh, I started researching some of these conspiracy theories about secret societies, uh, different reasons of why there's military uh, operations going around Baby, the world. Baby, it's cold outside. Wasn't yeah. that one of the videos that you went to? Yeah. That's, that's one of the videos that I saw. Right. That's actually a BBC documentary. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, I started researching stuff on uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, watching jihadi videos on YouTube when, uh, when YouTube was still unregulated. And... Uh, you know, because before they used to put on a jihadi video and it used to be on for weeks before they would right. take it off. So uh, so after some time, uh, I had a, a disagreement with a friend um, who was in the military. And me and him, we were going back and forth. And he said to me, uh, you know, you're like a lot of people where they just complain about stuff and never do anything about something that they feel is wrong. So that was like the, the last turning point that I needed to make my decision uh, to go overseas and try to do something about it. Uh, so I knew a friend who uh, knew some people in Pakistan that I would go 
and use that as my starting point. I would try to figure out uh, how to cross over into Afghanistan and join a militant group. I had a book uh, that I bought called uh, Inside the Jihad by Omar Nasiri. Right. And I used that kind of as a, a template, to as a, maybe like a guideline, so that I could follow to figure out how to end up in, in Afghanistan from Pakistan. Uh, I eventually joined one group that was connected with the ISI, that's the Pakistani CIA. And then uh, I had to escape that group, bounced around a little bit, and eventually I ended up in Al-Qaeda. And uh, I was arrested in November of 08 in Peshawar, and I was extradited back to the United States. Uh, I pled guilty to three charges, uh, conspiracy to murder, uh, providing material support to a terrorist organization, and receiving training from a terrorist organization. I did a total of eight years and eight months, and I was released uh, out of prison. And eventually I made my way here to see you, Chris. So. And what was the advice that, uh, or what did the judge encourage you to do? To You, you shared it earlier, to live your life, right? And, and live it well, right? Yeah, uh, my judge said he was cautiously optimistic. Uh, because he, he felt that I deserved a second chance at life. And, second chance. And, you know, I'm, I'm very appreciative of, of him giving me that chance. A lot of people didn't want to give me a second chance, but uh, he didn't factor that in. He chose on his own to give me a second chance at life, and I, I don't want to disappoint him. So. so I think a couple questions to ask, but you were somewhat disillusioned in some ways. You, had, you have shared in the past that you felt a little manipulated, and I think there's value in, in hearing your story and, and understanding that it wasn't what the Al-Qaeda uh, suggested they would be. In other words, there was the Al-Qaeda that's idealized, that, yeah. that people thought, you know, bright and shiny. And then when you get there, it was, in some cases, boring. In other cases, you felt like you were being used. Is that fair to say? Yes, that is fair to say. Um in the videos they make it, uh, they, they paint it as a very beautiful place to be and things are great and it's a, it's a beautiful path to go down and get martyred. But when you go there, um, there's a lot of obstacles that are in your way. A lot of times they, they just don't want to help you uh, join the battlefield. Uh, they make you take courses that aren't necessary to join the battlefield. Um, and you're just doing a lot of nothing. You're killing time day after day uh, a lot of guys are frustrated a lot of guys leave and they join other groups um, and there's a, there's a lot of false advertisement that goes into these uh, these propaganda videos and to be clear you didn't intend to join Al-Qaeda you had intended to be an insurgent you had intended to join the Taliban uh, to wage your version of a jihad. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, and the second part of that is you had shared with me a couple years ago or several years ago that, you know, you were animated by the Palestinian problem and uh, you wanted to wage your jihad in Afghanistan because you knew you could get to Afghanistan. Yeah, so um, when I first wanted to do jihad, uh, I didn't know anybody to get me into uh, Palestine. I didn't know anybody to get me into Iraq. But I did know somebody that can kind of get me as a starting point in Pakistan. From there, I would work my way into Afghanistan to um, you know, do jihad there. Now, I wasn't planning to go into Al-Qaeda. I thought that I would probably join a, a local Taliban group 
because there's so much Taliban groups out there. Um, and I thought that that would be the most likely scenario for me. Uh, once I was in uh, Al-Qaeda, I didn't know it was Al-Qaeda. I actually asked a, a Kuwaiti friend of mine. I said, what group is this? Because there are many Arab, you right. know, smaller groups. And then he told me this is Al-Qaeda. And I said, this is Al-Qaeda, really? And like, this is not what you see in the videos. You know, they have people training, you know, crawling on the barbed wire. They have hooded masks on all the right. time. And it's not like that when I was there. So it was a little surprising. But, you know, once I was in, I was in. I was like, all right, well, this is it. So bit of a bait and switch, right? A little bit, yeah. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So let's go back for a second because a lot of folks listening are going to be interested. I want to go back to the radicalization process because, you know, you talked about your aim and it was to do, to wage jihad in Afghanistan. Yes. Um, but dial it back a little bit. As you were going through the process, you were a seeker. And I had told you that when we first met, you were seeking something yes. and you found it in Islam. And But that doesn't explain that radicalization because a lot of folks find religion fine. So... W- I remember the story that you just shared a few minutes ago about wanting to take action. Yeah. And you were angry, I think, about uh, about uh, what you saw happening in Afghanistan. I don't want to put words in your mouth, yeah. but can you talk a little bit more? What was the trigger? And I know you listened to Alaki, and some of his message resonated with you. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, Alaki is, is very influential has inspired a lot of guys to go overseas or, or uh, to participate in, in jihadi activities. Um, I think uh, w- with his recordings, at least in the beginning, if you're pro-jihad and you listen to it, you, you believe that he's pro-jihadi in a lot of his recordings because he's, he's right on the border of his messaging. And depending on what interpretation you, know, you have internally you might interpret as either pro-jihadi or anti-jihadi or just normal. And uh, later on, after he came out of uh, prison in Yemen, then it was clear that he was pro-jihadi. But before that, he wasn't very clear on that. Uh, He's very charismatic, very funny, spoke English and Arabic perfectly. Um, Was very resourceful, uh, naming different hadith or or different um, Quran verses when he was giving his speeches. So... Uh, he's very mesmerizing to listen to. Persuasive. Very persuasive, yes. You had, were there any other uh, individuals that, uh, I, and I don't mean uh, people locally, but were, online, were there any other characters that uh, had a message that resonated with you? I think Bilal Phillips was one that came to mind. Isn't yeah, he was uh, uh, very uh, influential as far as following uh, the Salafi sect. And even though he never said anything specific about jihad, uh, most 
uh, al-Qaeda, most uh, pro-jihadi um, groups follow Salafism. So if you're learning about Salafism, you're obviously going to be learning about jihad. And right. You're going to be learning about these other groups. So even though he never said anything specific about those groups or jihad, learning about al-Qaeda goes hand in hand with learning about Salafism. And you had done some study, because I remember you and I talked about uh, Qutb, right? You, um, you studied uh, milestones, or you were familiar with milestones, is a that little fair bit, yeah. to say? Yes, right. yes. That, I mean, that not comes deeply, from, right? Yeah, but it comes from the Baby It's Cold oh, okay. uh, gotcha. documentary, where they, they talk about Syed Qutb. Uh, and that had me... That made me curious to read his book. I read his book. It's very difficult to, to read. You read Milestones? Yeah, I read That's Milestones. Yeah. Uh, and really, only one chapter is specifically about jihad. The rest is uh, more theoretical. Um, and uh, Milestones is, is almost like a must-read for, for people in the, in the Arab world that want to do jihad. So I, I read it in the English version. No, I remember that. I recall that. And I'm, I'm yeah. impressed that you read Milestones. <laughs> it's a tough read. I understand that. It's a I tough think read. A, um, the other story I, I would like you to retell just briefly. Sure. Because I remember thinking the fact that you went to Cuba, yeah. you know, that said a lot about you, about, yeah. you know, a sense of adventurism, however you want to define it. Mm -hmm. But you did something that the average American wouldn't do. And this is before you decided evidently evidently or as I understand it to go uh, to wage jihad so that mm. fascinated me just tell that story about how you got Cuba while you were boxing sure so um, because I started boxing later in life uh, not when I was a little child like a lot of great boxers do uh, in order to speed up uh, the learning process for me I decided to go to Cuba it's a it's a great place to go to train for boxing you can get a, a really great trainer and pay him, you know, a pretty good cheap wage. And, and he, for them, it's it's great money, and it's affordable for me to speed up the learning process. And I had one-on-one -on -one coaching for a while. Um, and the only thing I could say is that it, it it made me better at learning how to figure out how to go somewhere. But other than that, there really is no connection between. Pakistan, Cuba. Just my what own about personal the discipline. Uh, you've mm -hmm. alluded to that in the past as well, mm -hmm. as far as your self-discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the training is is uh, very rigorous. Uh, before I hurt my back, I was training like an animal. Right. And uh, how is your back, by the way? My back is terrible right now. Oh, <laughs> I have three herniated discs right now. All right. It, it went from two to three now. So, but uh, I was in great shape. That was probably the best shape I ever was in, in my life. And, uh, you know, the discipline of going to training every day, right. um, putting in the hard work, um, you know, it paid off. But like I said, it hurt my, I hurt my back. So I, that's as far as I went. So I don't think I'm jumping around when I ask mm -hmm. you back to Islam for a second. Mm -hmm. You, one of the appeals, as I recall, you talked about Islam provided prescriptions for living yes. and diet. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that had an appeal as well for you, correct? Yes. In the book that my friend gave me, uh, it talked about staying away from intoxicants, like, for example, like alcohol and pork, uh, how to carry yourself uh, a certain way, how to respect others, uh, how to treat your body correctly. Uh, and that, that really uh, hit a soft spot in my heart because... Uh, you know, a lot of other religions don't really talk about it that much, but this one was really emphasized that a lot, and it's something that attracted 
me a lot to Islam. Thanks. That that explains a lot. Um, you told me also self how you self-identify, how you view yourself. You had told me you thought you were a failed warrior um, when we last talked. Can you describe, you know, how you arrived at that conclusion? I mean, you failed because you failed to get to, into Afghanistan to wage jihad because you were rolled up uh, by authorities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I went with a goal to be martyred on the battlefield. Never happened. I mean, I tried best I could, but other people... Uh, just didn't either want me to go or they were making it difficult for me to go and I failed in that aspect and uh, you know you know but now that I look back and, and hindsight you know I'm here now it gives me an opportunity to take what I did and turn it into something good and uh, even though I failed in one category I hope to be successful in another category which is you know helping out the counterterrorism field so so I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but that's exactly right. There's a huge value in yeah. having you tell your story, I think, and deterring yeah. others maybe to go down that path. Uh -huh. um, the other question, I think I know the answer to this, but um, and I, actually I like the way you answer this. Sure. Why didn't you just stay in New York and, um, and, and do what something like SAPOF did last year in New York City or, yeah. or conduct some act of terrorism in New York. Uh, you explained that partially, but you could have stayed at home. And uh, Al-Qaeda has asked jihadists to stay at home and, and attack at home. Um, why didn't you do that? Well, I wanted to be martyred on the battlefield. I thought the war zone uh, in Afghanistan was a legitimate one at the time. I felt that uh, if I wanted to do something here, I could have just stayed here and did it. Uh, I think it was better off to go and uh, in anonymity, you know, go and as a regular soldier just like everybody else and die, and it didn't turn out that way. But Didn't you tell me Alaki had a, a message on that that appealed to you at the time, being martyred on the battlefield and buried in an unmarked grave? Yes, if, if you die and nobody knows... Uh, you know that you died out there you just were just killed in combat and you were buried as a you know just another another fighter out there that was something very honorable um something that that's very rewarding in the afterlife if that's how you ended your life and uh that's one of the the goals i wish i, I would have accomplished at the time so that that was very appealing to me yes so now here you are you've gone through many changes Yes. You're, you're, you're out of custody and you're giving back by telling your story and I think mm -hmm. there's some value in that um, so where are you right now are you doing okay yeah I'm hanging in there you know I'm working with Mitch we've uh, worked on uh, an article for the West Point Academy's newsletter on the Sentinel yeah I heard about that yeah, today I and I I, yeah. I apologize I didn't know it was published already no, that's all so right. I am going to chase that thing down yeah. probably tonight so I look yeah. forward to reading it yeah and you know I'm I uh, went to West Point and I educated some of their professors on jihadism give them a better understanding uh, I was out in two other uh, speaking engagements earlier today educating people on jihadism and answering questions about my story the best I could my life story the best I could I'm here with you, you know, in the Spy Museum. It's a quirky, funny place to be in. I, I love being here. And, uh, you know, helping you uh, educate jihadism uh, to your listeners. So. 
No, that's exactly right. Our, our listeners know that our mission significantly is to inform the public, to educate the public, and we have a variety of programs. You've literally not been the first former terrorist to come to speak to us. I, yeah. I just spent some time with another one recently, and there's such value in yeah. humanizing uh, the process that you went through because you had a good outcome. Yeah. Um, so I'll ask you again. I know you're not a policymaker, nor am no. I, right? Yeah. Uh, we're neutral here, but what it What's your advice on CV, countering violent extremism? Because I, I should say that recently I had Nick Rasmussen here. Okay. Nick and I worked together at the White House. Mitch, you know Nick. Uh, he was head of the National Counterterrorism Center. And both of us recognized that we, we both agreed that we didn't make enough progress on CVE. Um, so that was a frank admission on our part. Any advice to policymakers, uh, the value of outreach and CVE programs? We talked a little bit about it, but now is your opportunity to, to share your perspectives. Yeah, I think uh, everybody who uh, is in my situation should be looked at individually. I don't think everybody should be grouped under one category. Not one, one size yeah, fits all, right? Yeah, not, not one size fits all. That's, right. that's a very good um, way of describing it. Um, and there are some people that want to turn their life around. And, and if they're available to educate people on jihadism or their experiences in other fields, that they should be listened to. Now, whether they take their advice or not, that's something different, but they, they should at least be listened to. Um, and some are crazy and that they should be ignored. And, you know, you just make a record of what they say and just keep on moving. But um, as far as countering violent extremism, um, I think having people who experience the other side of the world uh, can help educate uh, people who are possibly going down that path to try to dissuade them into following the same mistakes that and I did or other people have made, and I think that would be a great starting point. Well said, Brian. Thank you very much. Yeah, Mitch, do you have any thoughts? We've covered a lot of ground. I know you, you guys uh, came a long way to, to do the podcast and do a couple other um, engagements today so it's been a long day any other thoughts that you might have uh, you know i would just add to <clears throat> brian's comments in response to your cve question um you know i think that the way we have to look at this problem this is not about hugging a terrorist right this is about ultimately it's a national security question keeping all of us safer um you know individuals who have spent time in prison served their time repented um you know more could and should be done to help them reintegrate into society. One, because it's a good moral thing to do. They've served their time. But number two, out of self-interest. Um, we don't want former terrorists to be recidivists because that is means that they're terrorist action. Number two, I think, you know, targeted interventions like Brian was alluded to. If you've got someone who's been on that other side of the world, been there, done that, and is disillusioned, what a great resource to be able to apply to an 18, 19, 20-year-old version of yourself who's going down that road, and maybe it's with you know, federal agents, prosecutor's office, nonprofit, but have an intervention and say, hey, listen, I've been there. You don't want to go down that road. That's a dead end, um, and it's not like the videos show. You know, so I think that's an important way you could use CV. And then you get into sort of the broader what they call PVE, preventing violent extremism, educational, you know, really more at the grassroots level. I think in some ways that's the trickiest because it's sort of not 
precisely targeted. You're trying to hit a wide audience. But, you know, maybe you start with, you know, former uh, formers who are coming out of prison, work with targeted interventions, and figure out what works, and then maybe bring that to the, to the preventing violent extremes. But it's an area that the U.S. is way behind uh, Europe and other countries on. Well, that's a good articulation. I agree with, with uh, most of what you said, and in fact, all of it. I mean, we just need to do a better job of counter-radicalization, counter-messaging, really. And uh, I think um, if there are gaps, I think there have been significant debates in the interagency, and we'll get to the right. At some point, we'll get to the right place. It's, in some ways, it's been very experimental. Um, so we'll see where it goes, but I think this really helps in this this validates what I talked about last year. So it's a pleasure again seeing you, Brian, and I have a feeling we'll see each other again. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much, Mitch. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.